Hello, time to welcome to time to sit. December <laughs> the sixth. It's Tuesday. We're going to put this out on Wednesday. Tammy, we're well into December now. How does this feel for you? Hi, Jay. I'm good. I'm super jet lagged still. I don't know. I'm like a week into my being back, a week and a half into being back, and I'm like a total mess. <laughs> Are you sure it's jet lag? It's not something else. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's also because we were drinking until really late last week, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't. My body is kind of falling apart. That's the latest I've been out in like five to six, ten years or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how well. I for it. those who were not there, we had our New York City show with Washu. We did a wonderful. He was wonderful, but we had an amazing turnout. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many hundreds of people. Four hundred people. Four hundred people showed up. Uh, some people even were turned away, which we apologize for. Um, but I don't know. It was wonderful to see everyone. I can't believe how much support the show has gotten over the years. And uh, we appreciate everybody who listens. And I don't know. I was very skeptical that, um, (laughs) not about people showing up, but about like that I would enjoy going because I don't like to leave my house. But you know what? (laughs) On the plane ride back, I was like, I'm glad I went. Like, I'm glad that, uh, I think that's the first time I felt good about getting on a plane in three years. And, you know, Aww, okay, that's was, something. That's worthwhile. Yeah, I have so to say thanks. that I left the bar at 3 a.m. and you were still going strong. So it's well, like very I think impressed. I left very, yeah. I, I was on <laughs> West Coast time. And so I guess it was just like mm. midnight. I guess it's that's usually right. when I'm watching like some dumb video on my phone, <laughs> <laughs> lying in bed, trying to go to bed. But um, I don't know, Tammy, did you watch this World Cup yesterday? Yeah, I went to a bar in the East Village by myself. And then a friend joined me later. And it was totally racially segregated in the bar. No, I just went to this. I went to like a, yeah, just a bar that I think is known as a Liverpool bar normally. And um, it was very like Brazil. Yeah, it was like all like white Brazil, Brazil fans. And then like. Me and my Chinese American friends and like two other East Asians cheering for Korea. But it was a total oh, wow. slaughter. Did you see it? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I went to a bar yeah. in um in Oakland. It was yeah. weird because I expected that this there's this place in Oakland, like Oakland Berkeley border. Yeah. It's called like Oriental something, I forget, like Oriental <laughs> Kitchen. <laughs> something. It's a it's restaurant? A, yeah, yeah. But they uh-huh. serve like Korean fried chicken and I don't know, like a bunch of like Korean bar food, you know, uh-huh. and um, they have all these televisions that open at like 1230 usually. Uh-huh. And so I assume that they're going to go and be open at 11 a.m. for yeah. this World Cup match. And I called them and they were like, I was like, are you going to be open for the World Cup? And he was like, what? And I was like, tomorrow, are you going <laughs> to be open for know. the game? And he was like, no. And then I was like, OK. <laughs> so then I went to the soccer bar. With some friends, including friend of the show and Korean American Tommy Craggs um, and um, my friend Sung, and uh, and then some of our other friends, and yeah, it was horrible. We were down two nothing immediately, and then it was <laughs> just like basically sitting there waiting for the game to end. I know, just being miserable. There's almost no Brazilians. It got there, a I think little bit better, I guess. There were some oh, Brazilians. Were, oh, really? In the bar? Okay. Yeah, but I don't see color, so I don't know if they were white uh-huh. Brazilians yeah. or not. But I certainly am not going to judge people I don't know being white Brazilians. Um, I don't know if they were Brazilian. I'm just saying all of the people who looked white in the bar were rooting for Brazil, and then we had our little pocket. Yeah, I mean, Korea fans. I don't know. It was a mess. It was kind of sad, but it's fine. They did their best, and that's all we it's can fine. ask, you know. It's fine. Um, and also, they weren't supposed to get any further. I feel like you're not really supposed to get mad if they got a little bit further than they're supposed to get. And you know, they had that one great moment. I don't. I imagine nobody's really mad about this, right? I mean, they could have had a better, yeah. more spirited last match or game or whatever, but they didn't, and it's fine. It um, was fine. And also, it's like fun to root for Brazil, you know. They've been going through a lot politically, whatever, whatever. <laughs> we I have know, Brazil well, and then Morocco won. I mean, that's very exciting. So, Yeah. I didn't know about Morocco, but I was sitting at the bar 
and there was a guy there who I know, and he was sort of telling me, he was like, we were trying to figure out who to root for going forward using anti-racist logic, you know? <laughs> Who's the most anti-racist team left to root for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's kind of hard, you know, because you like, you know, France has a very diverse team, you know, but obviously yeah, that's but a result France. of colonial past. But then you say... <laughs> Well, I don't know if people come back, as Tommy said, when people come back to the Metropole, it's different, right? It's not. Um, yeah. But... So France, but I don't know. I can't root for any European team. Yeah. And Morocco, I was like, well, what if all these Morocco, like maybe Morocco is kind of like Serbia where like, you know, it's just this like crazy, but I don't know anything about Morocco, but then he told me it was fine. And then I did a little bit of my own research and now I'm a Morocco fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And also world. like, did you hear this thing on the, on the sports cast when, the guy who won, who did the last penalty kick, his yeah. mom had been a maid in Madrid. Oh yeah, that's a type of thing. Yeah, like, apparently, stuff like that, right? Like that's amazing. Like my friend Francisco, who is uh, the number one Spain hater in the world, not in any sort of racist <laughs> way, but he just hates their soccer team. He was like telling me, he was texting me all the stuff that like far right leaders in Spain have been saying about Morocco. <laughs> I can imagine. I don't know oh if that's God. fair. I would assume it's not fair. It's like saying we can't root for the United States because of like what Steve Bannon said. Right, it's like, listen, right, right. okay, I don't yeah. what, In absence of actual good information, this is what I'm going to go off of. So I'm rooting for Morocco. I totally forward. think that's valid. Uh, yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's one, every other country I know just enough about to not like want to root for them. You know? I want to know more about his irrational hatred of the Spanish team. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. It involves like <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it started when we were in a bar together somewhere in Mexico City and some guy was huh. really rude to him. And, <laughs> and he's like, he was it's sort of engendered this. It's fun. Yeah. You <laughs> That's know? amazing. This is uh, this is how this is mostly how my worldview forms, too. You know, so I agree. Man, that I'm like, listen. <laughs> I have all these <laughs> theories now about why you did that. <laughs> Some of them are very problematic, but you know what? I'm just going to keep them to myself. Um, okay, well, so for our for our guest today uh, is Ting Guo. She's going to be on here in a couple seconds here, so please enjoy our conversation with Ting. So we've been paying a lot of attention to the protests going on in China and have been kind of trying to make sense of it. But of course, Jay and I are not China experts by any means. Um, we're very lucky to have with us Ting Guo, who is a friend of the pod. Um, Ting is really great on Twitter and co-hosts a Mandarin podcast that we know a lot of you guys listen to. Um, it's called Shicha Podcast, um, which means in between us. Um, Ting is an assistant professor of language studies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. She studies religion, politics, and gender in transnational Asia. Um, she's looking, for instance, at Me Too movements across the continent. And she's working on a book titled Politics of Love, Religion, Secularism, and Love as a Political Discourse in Modern China. Um, Ting, we're so excited to have you. Thank you for coming on. Cool. It's fun to be here. Big fan of your podcast. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. You. That's really meaningful. I wanted to just start out and give a sense of where we are today in terms of the protests, right? Because I think it's changed a lot since in the past couple of weeks. Uh, I would say maybe like 10 days ago is when people started seeing all these images that yeah. were coming out that were quite stirring, I think, right? People holding up A4 pieces of paper um, of people... You couldn't really tell the context, right? But people sort of shouting out slogans that you would not expect to hear, right? Like, you know, like down with CCP. It's very, it was very hard because yeah. it's all over social media video to tell what really even was happening, right? But it seemed like something was happening, right? And then this all starts from this fire at Urumqi, which uh, killed like, you know, 12 people and sort of this morning turned into a protest. But where, where are we today, you know, 10 days from there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I remember I was away in the U.S. for a conference at uh, the end of November. And when I, as soon as I returned, I remember uh, seeing all these images or the news about something was happening. And uh, it was quite remarkable across China, different cities and different places, across different communities, different ethnicities. People were uh, doing this 
holding vigils at first, but then vigils turned into pro- protests. And then not just within China, but outside China as well. So later, even in, in Toronto, where I met at the moment, uh, there were vigils, there were uh, commemorations, uh, there were rallies. And uh, in different parts of North America, different parts of Europe, really across the world as well, on university mm-hmm. campuses uh, mostly, and but also uh, sometimes in front of Chinese embassies or in other places as well. And uh, and with these offline activities, we also are witnessing emerging uh, increasingly online activities, online activism as well. So uh, when it first started, even before the current movement, uh, A4 revolution or white paper revolution, white paper movement, even before the current movement started, we already have uh, quite a few uh, kind of internet communities, the active communities online on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, for instance, Northern Square, uh, the most famous one, and also Chinese Citizen Daily, uh, and also its English language version, WhatsApp Beijing, they have already been sharing uh, lots of news activities, uh, satires, but also uh, kind of activisms within China. They, all these accounts been doing that. But then since the movement, they have been sharing more about uh what's happening in China, what's happening across the world, and who have been arrested, uh, what's the experience of those who have been arrested. And with that, something similar also, uh, more remarkable happened, that we uh, we also have more accounts, for instance, uh, 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 Chinese queers will not be silenced, and also uh, just uh, more activist accounts emerging, but they have been sharing uh, some are dedicated to uh, those who have been arrested and their ex- experience and asking people to try to help them if they can. And some are more uh, with kind of more obvious, straightforward feminist or queer uh, solidarities, mm. but intersectional as well. So I think that's something we noticed most uh, feminists and queer act- activists, they will ask uh, Uyghurs to speak first, putting them in the central place. So all mm-hmm. these online activities are still ongoing, but I think at the same time, offline activities, uh, rallies are still happening across the world as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are those two, like, are those two, and I, like, they're merging in some way, right? Where there is a more interplay with between the two, right? But like, I, I observed a lot of the student protests here in the United States on campuses. Like there was one at the University of Pennsylvania, for example, that like our old co-host Andy went to, you know, and Mm. I saw that there was one at Columbia, you know, where Andy and I went to school. And I think there was one at Stanford or at UC Berkeley, like near me. And, you know, it was, it's hard for me to tell, right? Because I think that those, because of the, you know, because they're not in China, right? But also because some of them are people who might have been here in the United States for a very long time. And, you know, mm-hmm. around the world, it seemed like there were other protests as well. Um, that they're like, how, what is the connection between the two? Right. Because I, I get, I talk to quite a few people and like, you know, there's mixed messages that you get. The first is that some people are like, this is just about zero COVID policy. And if they, if they relax zero COVID, then all this goes away. Right. But around any type of protest, there's always sort of, things around the edges that sometimes can become the central preoccupation of everything, right? Like, um, like what, what is sort of the balance of what people are upset about? And then how do these sort of um, more unexpected online protests that you were describing, right? The moments of solidarity between queer um, feminist movements, like, right? Like how do they sort of play into this larger narrative of like, we have like these, these COVID measures are too draconian. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting to notice uh, how these things kind of merge together, but where they diverge as well. But uh, I think, as many have pointed out, uh, of course, it was about the COVID, uh, zero COVID policy, uh, about the accident that happened. But uh, I think uh, there's another podcast, it's called Booming by a Mandarin podcast, I think, um, on that podcast interviewed several young people in, in Shanghai who went right. to the vigil and oh, the yeah. protest. All of them, uh, something in common, uh, all of them cried. <laughs> That's one thing in common was really moving. But also many of them were saying that you, from the narrative, from that stories, it's very clear that something else, they, all of them have been, uh, 
kind of feeling really sad and uh, mm. angry, but also kind of the feeling of kind of suffocation. Uh, they've been feeling that for not just since the COVID, but for years, uh, for many other, for due to many other reasons as well. So the, all these things have been bubbling up for for a long time. And COVID, I think, zero COVID policy and COVID it, as something that all of us experienced across uh, occupations or, or where we where we are, or the, all the other social categories. That's something that can unite people together. So we do see very different expressions, very different political orientations. Uh, some may not even be that explicitly, explicitly political. Uh, very different pursuits, very different or different social categories. But at the same time. Uh, uh, kind of the anger and grievances and sadness and just uh, despair. I think that all these emotions tied all these very uh, other social differences together into what we're witnessing today. Mm. Could you also add in the the Foxconn piece and the kind of yeah. labor piece? Because, yeah, there was the Room 2 fire and then shortly thereafter there was this really, like, photogenic and kind of spectacular and bizarre, you know, situation at Foxconn where workers were <laughs> scaling a fence and leaving. And then there was some sort of concession made to them. But um, yeah, so it seems like kind of labor discontent is feeding into this. But also as, as um, one of the podcast listeners in China was pointing out to me, um, it's interesting that there haven't been explicit like sort of socioeconomic demands either. So I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, sorry, just to make sure. So the uh, the listener was saying that there was or there wasn't first the that there hasn't been that yeah hasn't that, been. that yeah that they were a little bit surprised that it doesn't seem like there it's like you yeah know, this is leading to like we want this particular thing that is like a definable kind of economic thing yeah uh it's interesting i think uh the reason just to follow up with the the later the, the, the last comment i think the reason why we're not seeing many uh demands for uh just basic socioeconomic uh, demands. I think that's because most uh, visible uh, protests that we are seeing are from college-educated uh, kind of urban professionals or overseas students, mm. young students. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that is not their most kind of the first concern while there are i think i'm sure there are uh, and i have seen actually some some slogans some banners uh, addressing this issue a labor issue and also and more direct socioeconomic concerns uh, but those who are preoccupied with these issues um their outcries i think are not that visible to outsiders mm. Uh, and right. it's not too migrant work yeah. migrant workers also yeah. right in yeah um, absolutely or, um like there's some but it seems to be very marginalized like you said in the coverage right like, yeah um, exactly yeah. yeah absolutely and also uh so speaking of the folks come so i was just reading uh this interview uh between promise Lee and also uh, uh, Igor Dong, uh, I think one of the oh, yeah. Yeah, best young uh, female scholars in, in this regard. So their interview uh, about the Foxconn, the kind of connection between the Foxconn workers and the current movement that we are seeing. So the, the Foxconn workers, they were not having kind of very explicitly, again, not very, very explicitly direct political uh, demands uh, in their uh, actions, it was just something mm. that they just couldn't take anymore. They could; it was yeah. life or death matters. Right. But that's, I think, uh, a concern shared by many Chinese under the lockdown, strict lockdown, can, uh, over the past mm. uh, three years. Uh, that's something yeah. actually shared in the current uh, movement as well. But I guess Foxconn being a kind of uh, Apple iPhone. Uh, uh, producer that's something that again that and also the kind of uh popular the, the mass uh protest and just leaving the the ground that also i think gained more attention uh because of that right but it is right. something definitely shared among many workers migrant workers especially uh in the in, yeah. in, within the past three years, but also even before COVID, before all the lockdowns, there were other uh, related issues, kind of labor rights and also uh, 
migrant workers or just migrants in general, uh, there was the low-end population clearance in Beijing uh, in recent years. That also, when it happened, it also gained a lot of uh, attention and academic discussions as well. But all these things, I think, remained in our memories uh, if we have some connection to China, that we read in the news, uh, we were angered by this. We were shocked to see this, that uh, a regime would just push away its own people, claiming that they are too low end to be to, to be living in the city. <laughs> yeah. But so that's kind of something that we already had. We already have witnessed this prior to uh, the current movement and prior to uh, COVID. Uh, so that remained in our memory, and that's the and then Foxconn, and then current, uh, and then what happened in COVID and current movement. So there is the threat yeah. of labor rights, of uh, immigration uh, kind of rights. That's that's always been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is how do these things work? Right, like that's something that I don't that I would like a little bit of like clar- clarity on, which is just that like I don't know, like I. Where, like my job for a while is to cover protests and so I have a good idea mm-hmm. of how American protest works, right? And then I spent a lot of time reading about Tiananmen on a film mm-hmm. project. And so I have a good sense of how Tiananmen built, right? Like starts with a student protest and then it's in like 300 cities across China and that um, and that it builds very quickly, right? Um, and that it's about everything, right? It's not about, it's not about mm-hmm. democracy or like, you know, like War Kaishi, like, you know, during Tiananmen, they asked him, like, what's your first demand? And he, he said, like, Nike shoes, right? <laughs> and so, like, people, I think sometimes people fixate on those types of things and they hey, this is what it was about. But it really was about everything, right? And it grew very quickly, obviously, at a time before social media, right? But basically, every camera in the world was already in China because, like, Mikhail Gorbachev was giving a speech. And like, you know, like they're just like, hey, point the camera over there. There seem to be students on hunger strike and then it becomes this worldwide event. Right. But for this, you know, like there is this narrative out there and it's one that I believe is true. Right. But I don't know. And it's one that like, okay, well, we've had this sort of buildup of unrest in China. Right. And that we have everybody sort of decided, okay, when Wuhan, you know, sort of is shut down, let's just all do our part. But then things are bubbling up. Right. You have the doctor, the whistleblower in yeah. In um yeah. in Wuhan, who dies, and when he dies, like there is this huge outpouring, right? You have Bridge Man, right? Like Bridge Man is like uh yeah, you know, yeah. like the new like people call him yeah. Bridge Man because he's yeah. like the new Tank Man, right? Like yeah. and then right. and then you have this explosion um of online images that come out that like you can't really even tell how many people are there. It might be twelve people there, and they filmed it very <laughs> creatively. <laughs> right? Like I can't tell, you know. I'm so skeptical about that stuff because I've seen. You know, I've sometimes, you know, like I would go to like a protest and there'd be like nine people there and like people were so good at photographing themselves in a way to <laughs> like make thousands look like, of people yeah, to make it look like there was like at least 60 of them. And I would see the image later on Twitter and I'd be like, oh, my goodness, these people are geniuses. There are only like there are nine people there and three reporters. And that was it. You know, so like, um, you know, like at what like if there is a theory of sort of building unrest, right? Like, where are we at this point? And like, you know, like, how are people like in China thinking about it? You know, are they just thinking like, oh, well, you know, this type of stuff happens from time to time? Or do they see it as like a, uh, a sort of, you know, like there is like a linear energy going up? Yeah, I think this time is really different from uh, first of all, it's very different from the Tiananmen from 89, right. and it's different from other uh, large or small-scale unrest or, or protests in China in the mm-hmm. past few years. Uh, but it also mm-hmm. builds on all the experiences that people have had from previous uh, activism right. or protests in recent years. Uh, I think feminist activism being one of the most prominent but uh, but the scale is unprecedented. Uh, the scale is quite remarkable. Uh, I think when they first started, for instance, some uh, protesters in Shanghai, as, as they record, they first just want to do a vigil to commemorate those who died in the fire in Wumuruchi. So and that happened in Urumuchi, mm. and there just happens to be a road, a street called Urumuchi yeah. Road in Shanghai. So that. seems to be the perfect <laughs> spot. Yeah, and that kind of more people gathered and from what we have seen photos uh, uh, in kind of podcasts, uh, people's stories, it was a really large uh, gathering in, in other cities as well. And in 
kind of in overseas communities, uh, m- most of the gatherings uh, were quite remarkably big, huge, well-attended gatherings. And also it brought people together. Uh, I think in the past few years, we have seen uh, labor pro- labor-related protests. Uh, we have seen uh, feminist activism. Uh, and uh, we also just all sorts of other uh, protests. We have seen that in recent years, but in different communities, or uh, each one of them uh, was related to a particular pursuit, a particular community quite often. But this time, because it was about COVID, it brought people together. And I think it's also mm. remarkable. It's also something different uh, because it's a moment of reckoning. It's a moment of breaking many boundaries, of breaking many prejudices, of breaking many ignorances. And I think it's, uh, I, for me, I see it as a soul-searching moment. As, as somebody who's originally from Shanghai, I can say that Shanghai people can be, they are just lovely, amazing, but they can also be uh, kind of too proud of themselves sometimes and uh growing up i also remember uh shanghai people being quite uh, xenophobic about people from elsewhere especially ethnic minorities but that mm. is a result of uh what we have what have what we've been taught in school and what we uh been fed in news in media in propaganda so the the fact that people decided to commemorate ethnic minorities uh in uh, in in Shanghai, I think that was already quite a step forward. It was already quite uh, a kind of interesting phenomenon. Uh, and what, then, was your, uh, what was your like emotional response to that? Because that was one that part that one part that I think is not quite discussed very much. You know, mm-hmm. that like this was not like you know that this was you would expect a certain callousness about about the people who died in this in this fire, right? And instead, it becomes this moment for mourning now that doesn't mean everyone in china like is not you know does not still have some of those uh you know has all like expunged themselves in a anti-racist way you know but like (laughs) um but you know like i like what like were you surprised by that and then when you saw the reaction you know and you saw sort of the outpouring like you know like what, what was sort of going through your you know, like through your spirit, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised, I guess, because uh, COVID already kind of already broke down many of the barriers, many of the uh, kind of boundaries. And also ev- everyone's been suffering. Everyone knows someone who died in COVID uh, in, yeah. in lockdowns. So we there's more shared humanity, shared sadness, shared grievances. Uh, among different communities, there's already that. But uh, I was maybe happily surprised by later in many protests, uh, in many slogans, many banners, the very uh, clear demands, uh, and in online space as well, very clear uh, social-searching moments where people uh, uh, began to say that uh, how not to make this uh, kind of a Han Chinese-centric movement, how yeah. we should place Uyghurs in the central place first, and also how we should acknowledge that China is, in fact, a Han supremacist society, uh, just like Han people are just like the white people in, in, in North America uh, or in a white dominant society. So I think uh, being able to see that, being able to witness that, uh, is something that made me quite emotional. And mm. uh, and I also uh, began to see more discussions about uh, the concentration camps, uh, the uh, the sufferings that Uyghurs endured, and uh, and we also began to see many uh, very heartfelt apologies by Han people to Uyghurs, and also how uh, some Uyghurs uh, began to say. Some began to say that they acknowledge these apologies. It's never too late. Uh, but some still uh, kind of, uh, are still, understandably, are still hurt by what happened in the past. But in any yeah. case, all these exchanges, all these emotional exchanges, I think is uh, something uh, quite new, uh, but remarkable mm. and something, uh, yeah, that 
kind of just runs through many emotions. I don't know if you've uh, if you saw there was this video footage on Twitter, a young student, I think at UCLA, at one of the UCLA videos uh, uh, commemorations, uh, he stood out and apologized for his ignorance and uh, kind of on behalf of uh, Han Chinese in China to Uyghurs. <laughs> wow. And uh, a, a Uyghur netizen later shared this and said, uh, I don't represent any Uyghurs, but as a Uyghur, I only represent myself. I accept his apology. Uh, that's just, hmm. yeah, something really amazing. So is that, do you want to say a little bit more about that transnational aspect because that yeah you were talking about these students in the US in Europe all over the world who are staging their own kind of companion protests um it's not that that hasn't happened before but it does seem pretty widespread um yeah so and I was wondering if this kind of articulation of of difference you know and and this the bridging of differences like it, it's very like I guess relatable exportable it's something that people are are, are doing you know, in the United States in the same way, I think, as you were saying in China. So, yeah, I guess, like, how unusual is that transnational companion aspect to these protests? And is there something we can say about the way that people are talking about, like, doing these apology gestures and, you know, kind of bridging these differences? Yeah, the transnational aspect is very interesting. Uh, but that didn't surprise me too much because we have, I think, more recently, we've already seen that uh about the the bridge man, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think right, right. that's yeah. something also interesting. I think <laughs> I forgot to say that that incident uh, also influenced how the movement uh, is going today. And, mm. and lots mm-hmm. of uh, in many rallies this time, in many uh, commemorations vigils this time, uh, many of the things uh, read out loud that will include. Uh, kind of what the bridgeman said on the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so it definitely that that that's a major influence in what we how people gather and how people uh, express themselves today. And uh, given that many protesters uh, are quite young and uh, maybe that was the it's their first time attending something like this. So they don't really know what to say. Uh, and uh, I think the bridgeman gave them a lot of ideas. <laughs> that's something really interesting yeah but uh also there was another report from initial media uh, in hong kong that also pointed out because many protests it's the first time protesting it's the person attending such things so there were uh different opinions and some of uh, my friends also uh pointed out in one of the uh videos in europe there was this uh, disagreement at first between uh, Han people and Uyghur people and uh, resulted in disagreement uh, arguments and even debates. So there, there were definitely that. Uh, but I think even with disagreements, even with arguments, uh, nonetheless, I think they are good, start, good points to start mm-hmm. with from which yeah. we can, can see more voices and we can really have more reflections. And the trans no trans so with the bridge man, we were having this uh, poster movement across campuses uh, right. across the world uh, in China as well. Oh, and also before that, we had toilet revolution. Uh, I think people started students started to uh, write down things, slogans, uh, just in public toilets. There with that. So Wait, we what, definitely- was the- <laughs> what was the toilet? Can you, can you recap the toilet revolution? This is fuzzier in my memory. <laughs> so there was, uh, I have to Google. I don't want to do that now. But <laughs> there, okay. there was this, uh, I, I'm not even sure it was called toilet revolution, but something <laughs> to that effect. So uh, people were writing down uh, uh, dissenting voices, ideas in public toilets. Uh, on toilet doors, on toilet walls, uh, or in any place you can find in a public toilet. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of the slogans, many of the ideas were quite amazing. So there's that. Mm-hmm. So we have seen waves of activism, uh, shared ideas across different parts of the world uh, mm-hmm. prior to the, the current movement. And the poster movement also was another transnational movement where uh, people printed out uh, what the bridge said. <laughs> uh, 
and <laughs> made and made them into a really creative posters and put them up uh, mostly mm. on campuses uh, across the world. That's already and then all the inter- uh, online communities that I mentioned earlier, Northern Square, uh, China Citizen Daily, and, and more uh, Chinese feminists as well. All these online communities uh, on uh, quite often on Instagram, they will provide links uh, that were from which people can download all these posters, and then they can print out the posters themselves and then put them up uh, from where they oh, are. Yeah. So there's already that very interesting. Uh, a kind of production line, almost a very interesting uh, kind of connections people can can have uh, transnationally and this time as well. And this time, uh, d- different internet communities were providing different services, services in quote, because they were not providing services, it's all activism. But some accounts were just really sharing uh, who uh, went missing uh, and where the families of friends can find them and help them from delete some information from their personal uh, devices mm-hmm. and that. And also, uh, again, what we have had from the poster movement uh, this time as well. So again, uh, many Instagram, Instagram accounts uh, begin to provide all this, these links from which people can download posters. Uh, and with these posters, they can share these posters uh, with their own communities, wherever they are. But then there's also uh, lyrics, there's also slogans they can chant, they can uh, uh, shout out loud at different pro- uh, protests at different vigils across the world. So that's something really remarkable. And, and why, oh, yeah, sorry. Why, why do you, oh, sorry, just to interject, like, why do you think feminists and queer people have been kind of at the forefront of this, or at least like very important? Because I, I mean, one thing I was thinking about, like, I, you know, that um, Lita Hong Fincher book about yeah. uh, Me Too in China. Yeah. Like, I remember from that book, a lot of talk about, like, internet formation and the way that the, you know, feminist activism has circulated online. And so I was wondering if, like, maybe that was part of this. But it does seem striking the extent to which women have kind of been at the forefront of some of these protests. Yeah, uh, that's something also really amazing. So I was just about to say about the transnational aspect of the current movement. So we have already seen the transnational aspect of trans feminist movements uh, in recent years from the Me Too movement. What's remarkable about the Me Too movement, for instance, uh, a recent case was tried, Was uh, the crime was conducted in the US and the trial happened in the US as well. So there were people recording what happened and then translating them very almost... Uh, simultaneously and share them on hmm. social media, on Instagram. And then what's shared on Instagram is, again, uh, reposted to Weibo uh, and all the Chinese social media accounts and shared uh, by, I guess, thousands or even more uh, personal accounts on WeChat and that. So there's very interesting transnational line of distribution of activism transnationally from the MeToo movement and uh the one reason why the Chinese Me Too movement could be the mo- one of the most resilient and powerful, I think, is because of transnational aspect. Many activists, mm. uh, they started in China, but then they moved overseas and uh, they connected with the younger generation of Chinese students and feminist activists, queer activists uh, in the US, for instance, and they began to support the Me Too movement from outside China and with activists within China. So we have already seen that. Uh, uh, but the reason why we have seen a really remarkable feminist presence in this current movement, I think there are different ways of thinking about it. One uh, more, more kind of more direct way of thinking about this is we have already, we've already been having a very active, very powerful um, feminist activism in China for uh, almost ten years now in the in the mm-hmm. latest decade, so they have feminists have the experience of organizing and taking part in transnational activisms. And an interesting thing about this, because of the feminist activism, because it's been so prominent in China, so it kind of uh, went into the commercial side as well. Kind of uh, 
the state, even the state and different brands realize this is something that they can milk. This is something they can capitalize on. <laughs> so okay. you see different entertainment, entertainment shows or commercial products uh, kind of using all these feminist awakening uh, discourses uh, just because they, there's a, they, they know it can sell. So even if most people are not activists, but they have been nonetheless influenced by, uh, even encouraged by all these feminist awakening and feminist discourses and feminist ideas. So that's why I think a lot of women are encouraged to take part in the current movement. Uh, and, at this, with, hmm. uh, and at the same time, we already have the kind of organizing structures, uh, in, kind of activist infrastructure from recent feminist movements. And also, um, I think uh, the... The, the lockdowns and all COVID and co- uh, that all these things really impact the vulnerable groups of the society and the marginalized groups of our societies. And I think women are often at the margin of the marginalized and minorities as well. So, right. and the, uh, and another aspect is I think what we are facing, the regime itself is uh, a patriarchal region, a patriarchal authoritarian region. So the, Authoritarian itself is patriarchal. The way that it manifests, the way it conducts its policies and politics is patriarchal. And uh, we see that with the Uyghurs as well. So I think women feel that more directly. Uh, they have a deeper connection to other people's sufferings, other minority mm-hmm. groups' sufferings, because they also suffer under this patriarchal authoritarian regime. Right. Uh, exactly. That's why I think it's mostly, uh, f- firstly, I think it's feminist and uh, queer activists who would invite or centralize uh, Uyghurs or they would uh, be able to, yeah, kind of very quickly change the way uh, we talk about the movement and have mm-hmm. more reflections about the way the movement is going. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give a sense of like what the suppression is going to be like right because like it seems like this week or the week before that it's already in full swing right and it's not something that is out in the public that the world is watching we don't see i mean we're the some of the most stunning images i think that came out of this are people in hazmat white hazmat suits chasing around like old people (laughs) and young girls and stuff like that and it really looks like it's out of a horror movie you know because they're just like they're outside what are they so like what are they wearing you know like it's like if they want to look make it look like it's a sci-fi movie that like is like totally dystopian then they've done a very good job right but that has really sort of died down a little bit right like we don't we're not seeing the same direct confrontations and i think what's interesting is that like it seems that like a average chinese citizen at this point is living through what here in north america like some of the more paranoid people believe is well, I mean, including me, honestly, I'm a little one of these people who believe it's like a, it's like a civil liberties disaster, and that like every single thing that you do is being tracked because of COVID policies. They know exactly where you are at all times because it's on your phone, all this sort of stuff, and that through that amount of information that they have about where you go, who you're around, everything that you're typing into your phone, that they have this like unique sort of way, or this like totally unique access that is kind of new you know and it's like new in terms of digital suppression but can you just describe some of that right now and like you know like how it's sort of like how does an average citizen who might have gone to one of these protests or something like that how do they even experience that type of digital suppression yeah this is just something uh, uh again something very different from a determined uh movement because the regime has really stepped out its game technology is uh, just at the center of this, how the suppression is going at the moment. Uh, if, especially if, uh, for many people, if they even when if they purchase their phone in China, the phone, even if it's an iPhone, that that iPhone is different from okay. yeah. <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah, it's got so like a just, little trap door in it or yeah, something like that, where yeah, they hide all yeah. the little like yeah, yeah, the surveillance yeah. strips or something. Yeah, yeah. and uh, local brands, if the phone is from a local brand, that's even easier. I think there's a saying on the Chinese internet that we're already naked. <laughs> okay, because yeah, it's that's, from, that's from the poetic, kind of yeah. surveillance eye yeah right. so that that and i think in shanghai uh i heard from when netizens are saying that they are building up uh these centers that can track uh 
the flows of data from public spaces, and that will just make it very easy and make it very easy for them to trace what apps they're using. And also, they are personally checking people's phones to see if they they have downloaded all the apps that are banned in China. Right, for like instance. Telegram. Yeah, Telegram, like especially yeah. Telegram, because right. right. Telegram is people use to be connected to share ideas uh, or to share what you need for to protest. I know. I have this reporter friend who reports on China. And I always know when they're uh, reporting on something because they rejoin Telegram. You know, I'm like, oh, they must be working on a story. <laughs> they rejoin Telegram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Telegram Check- is banned, right? But um, yeah. it has like, I don't know. Telegram is such a strange app to me in that like it has become in China, Russia, Ukraine, all these places, it's become the go-to thing. And like, I remember when Telegram came out, it was mostly like a way for people who were involved in cryptocurrencies to talk to each other. And like, we all thought it was so, we uh, being the operative word, I was involved in some of the stuff. It, we thought it was like the shadiest <laughs> thing in the world. You know, it was like, it's too rough. <laughs> it's like, there's no way this is actually encrypted, you know? And like, yeah. um, but now it's become sort of the go-to, the go-to communication tool, right? I guess like they must believe in the encryption yeah. even more so than Signal, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. So, yeah. so it's really people yeah, will, in Korea too. People, Same thing. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So people will come and like check your phone. That's one way they'll sort of uh, track the data coming out of like even a public space, right? That's another way. And then really like every step that you take or everywhere that you go is is also tracked in to the point where they can t- like that. This is obvious from the lockdowns where they can tell if you've left your house, for example, right? Yeah. Yeah. And also uh, they are checking overseas. Uh, social media as well, Twitter, for instance, they are checking. Some people have shared that they uh, they shared something related to protests, not just this one, the previous protests as well. And then the families or or themselves uh, were visited by the authorities. So they're always checking uh, social media overseas and domestic social media. They're always checking that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think this time it is difficult for the censorship machine to work that well as it did in the past. It's because so many people are sharing all this information at the same time. And then we have a really uh, decentralized way of sharing information this time. So we have kind of just ordinary people, but they suddenly became this center of information, almost like a hub. And they began to share what's happening uh, in, in China to the outside world. And they, we have a lot of these people. So that also made it difficult for the censorship machine to uh, kind of work its magic. That's right. kind of what we're countering. Yeah. But again, these people, if, even if they're outside China, uh, the authorities always have a way to find the families and always have a way to harass the families as a way of sending signals of, of warning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, before, because it's not journalists, right? Because journalists are very easy to shut down, you know? I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, like, because, you know, they're public and also... Yeah. Gen- yeah, generally poor, you know, just be like, listen, I'll give you $20,000, <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, and so those set big central forms of communication that usually would post these images outside to the outside or even something that's a big centralized, uh, you know, like a big centralized Chinese social media network, right? Like, but now it seems like there are other things that people are downloading to get the, these images out or else we wouldn't see them. You know, like, I think it's just that simple. Like we wouldn't have seen these images at this volume. Um, how do they sort of tamp down on that? Right. Cause that's my big, like as a journalist, that's my big fear, which is just that like, it will become very soon impossible for me to cover this from the United States or to even keep up with it from the united states there could be like protests of thousands of people in shanghai or in any of these cities and we might not know about it you know like it might be totally suppressed like do you think but you seem to be saying like that is not quite so true anymore right because of these decentralized ways yeah absolutely and also there's a kind of transnational aspect to uh, kind of today's chinese citizens even though many things happen in China and to even if it's just a small community, but there are always people sharing what's happening and on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, I think during the Shanghai lockdown earlier this year, uh, which was really harsh, many so many people died. And then I began to see on Instagram dedicated accounts to report 
uh, what's happening in Shanghai, not only in English, there was also a French account. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> just people, yeah, I didn't think people would do that. And also this time, this movement, uh, there's certain uh, moments of uh, just be activism, protests or uh, violence but somehow there's always people kind of video recording uh, what was happening and then uh, reposting that on Twitter so people would know. And some of these cases did not take place in big cities, but in small towns, small places. But nonetheless, there are still people there uh, witnessing this but and sharing this as well. Uh, and I think that's something from the current movement as well. Uh, this is There's a sense of everyone must be responsible or must really take part in this not just kind of uh passively wait for somebody to give orders to how to protest but we should do this ourselves we should find ways to do this ourselves and there's an there is a, a very famous line from the 89 Tiananmen protest that's been uh kind of reshared many times this time as well this is my duty that's from a young man from 89 but I think this is my duty is something that people are not only seeing that at protests, but people are really thinking about this and uh, act, acting actively acting their part as well. What, what would you define as like this then? Because that's the part that about these protests is so fascinating to me, right? Is that you have this symbol of this white piece of paper. It can be anything, right? And part mm. of the slogan is it can be anything. It is nothing. And um, yet, you know what it is, and I know what it is, right? It's yeah. it's like a. I don't mean to yeah. be like racist here internally, but you know, it is like there is like a sort of almost like Taoist like idea to it, right? Like what is empty is full, and like <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding, you know, like it is, right? Like there is like yeah. it's like that poem that all the you know every Chinese child has to learn from like Lao Tzu or whatever, right? Like or about um, you know the wine cup being full in the moon, right? Like it's like similar to that. I thought about that as like a somebody who's you know read I don't know there's a I have a phase in my life where I read a lot of these things and I find it very beautiful you know like you know like truly stirring um and yet like I could not tell you outside of the covid restrictions what this is you know what the this is our duty what is our duty you know and that's because I'm you know not I'm like an outsider I don't know you know but like well, how would you define it you know like um what is it? For me, it's like, I see it. And I'm just like, these are people who have lived under these conditions for this long. And it doesn't need like a particular political expression. I think that we saw something that was very similar here in the United States in 2020 or with George Floyd. You know, it's just like mm. millions of people. Most of them are just like defund the police. They're just like, what? I don't know. <laughs> you know I'm just out here. You know, I'm mad. Like, I can't believe they killed this person, you know? Um, like, uh, but I think that most of them could sort of at least identify I'm here for Black Lives Matter or whatever, right? Like, so like, what is, what is the this right now? Or yeah. what do you think it is? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, just like you said, this is all the kind of, uh, years of discontent, years of, uh, repressing, uh, emotions, and uh, also, I think it's because there's so much uh, anger, so so many emotions. It's impossible to put it down into words uh, to describe it uh, in sentences uh, in one piece of paper. So we rather leave it out blank because it's almost just all the emotions are so vast and, and so impossible yeah. to describe anymore. There's no words to describe the level of despair and the level of anger and the level of grievance. It's just really that sad. Uh, as I said, almost everyone knows someone who died. And I just re remember something from when I was volunteering for uh, the lockdowns. It was just people were sharing their own uh, IDs, ID numbers, phone numbers where they live just because they were desperate. There, nobody was there to help them, but they just really needed hospital. They needed medical care. They needed food. Food, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was something. Yeah, people are like growing yeah. vegetables in their house, like not as like, you know, not like Americans who are growing like 
making sourdough bread or something yeah. to pass the time. And it's like, <laughs> like you can't go to a grocery store, Necessity. you know, like, like yeah. you have to yeah. eat. Yeah. Yeah. And the level of injustice and inequality in China is also uh, the whole ecosystem uh, kind of household registr- registration that just uh, make makes things in unequal when from the moment when you were born. Uh, so right. people who hold rural hukou uh, have no access to urban resources at all, medical, educational, anything. And during lockdown, uh, during COVID, if um, actually many uh, migrant workers are from the rural area, uh, but many of them just have to starve to death because and they uh, hospitals shut them out. They have nowhere to go. Uh, they have no home. It was just that impossible. So, right. and oh, and that also speaks to the differences in people's experiences. And it's difficult to put all these different, uh, kind of reduce all the differences into one thing to put put it on uh, put it into words. Mm-hmm. That's why I think the right paper, white paper, is a uh, genius yeah. idea of leaving the space blank, so that uh, people can yeah. find their own space uh, for their own narratives. Uh, and we do right. not represent nobody's uh nobody's able to represent anyone else that's why i like this idea of of the white paper yeah it does seem though that the the ccp is the central government is responding by relaxing some of the covid restrictions so in terms of like yeah the demands are sort of diffuse but the response offered i guess is is that yeah uh but just like what happened in Iran, we we never know. They yeah. say one thing, yeah, but yeah, they totally. do another. Yeah, and but then right. uh, speaking of Iran, the Iranian revolution was also a major influence on what's happening in mm. China mm-hmm. and in all the movement as well. Something yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and in lots of the protests, people chanting slogans: "We stand with people from Ukraine. We stand with people from Iran." That's, right. that's yeah. just so. That's another transnational aspect of this. People totally. have been influenced yeah. by what's happening around the world and not just uh, the way they see the world, kind of their, their understanding of cosmopolitanism is just not kind of reading a Monaco magazine or drinking, I don't know, <laughs> one of the very Monaco fancy coffee shops. Monaco. Yeah, that's, it's that's the idea of that. Magazine. It's no longer that, but that's it's rather perfect. kind of right. connecting with other social movements, grassroots movements around the world, like Black Lives Matter yeah. and also Iranian Revolution, also Ukrainian well, all, all of that, I think that that's something people yeah. cared more about rather than all the other things uh, in mm-hmm. this particular movement. Yeah. Uh, so the government say one thing, but at the same time, I think uh, in many cities, uh, many neighborhoods are still under lockdown and they have not right. completely totally. given up all the health codes. Right. And they uh, also yeah. like mm-hmm. they, they have this problem where, you know. They don't have the population properly vaccinated. So like, yeah, yeah. Like what exactly. are they, you know, like they're kind yeah. of like, well, what do you want us to do? Exactly. Um, and I guess there's some news that like China has developed an mRNA vaccine and like maybe it'll start being distributed quite quickly. And maybe, you know, like that might return some normalcy. But yeah, I think like when I think about it, at least it just seems to be locked in your house, like in the way that people are for on and off, almost arbitrarily, not almost arbitrarily, like very arbitrarily, not really following science in a lot of ways. And then being every time you leave, you're chased around by these men in these white hazmat suits. Just like, how, totally. just like of course, people are out protesting. Yeah, <laughs> How could they not be, you know, like yeah. uh, even the United lo- States were like ready to like, uh, do all sorts of things, including like <laughs> storm the cap. Like I don't know, these causation things are only like they're mostly in my head. But you know, like like there's like like people were pissed after you know three months or something like that. You know? yeah. and like now it's three years. Like of course, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah. And totally. people are. I think most people are just nice enough and uh, to follow these rules, like the Foxconn workers. Right, yeah. They, for years, three years, they had kind of minimal food, almost no food. And when someone got ill, they were just almost left out that to die without any medical supply and without any food or water sometimes. And that happens uh, in lockdowns as well. Hospitals shut down, hospitals shut patients out, no ambulance available. That was just that level of bizarre impossibility, but uh cruelty it was just kind of 
one major reason of why so many people can identify with what happened in this in this movement. Right. You see, you're like, I'm staying in my house. I'm sacrificing everything, and then you just let someone I know die like in front of the yeah, hospital. Exactly. Like, how could that not be? A, yeah, and suicides. Right. In one of the uh, interview is for Booming by podcast. Uh, someone record that during the lockdown, several people committed suicide in his neighborhood. And that all is something that's all part of his memory for life. Right. It is trauma. You know, these traumatic moments, like they accumulate. Um, yeah. What do you think? We'll have, you know, this is the last question. How do you see this building? You know, I think from a cynic standpoint, right? I am not this, but, you know, I'm actually very quite hopeful about <laughs> these moments. Um, but I can see a cynic saying, China is so good at suppressing this stuff, you know? And they're so good at giving little concessions that will, you know, like easing up on the COVID stuff will help a little bit, right? And that the air, that basically what she is trying to do is he's just trying to wait this thing out. He's going to use the surveillance stuff. And then he's going to, um, he's going to give like two concessions. And then he's just going to basically, the air will come out of this and then it'll be back to normal. Um, you know, like, how do you think the activists avoid that fate, right? Because it seems like there is a decent chance that that is what will happen. Yeah, I'm thinking about this as well. Uh, also, divide and rule, I think, right. is a common tactic that's been applied millions of times in kind of communist history. And at the same time, there's also something very interesting about kind of thinking about emotions. Uh, uh, after Wuhan lockdown, and uh, there's a very uh, common emotion shared among citizens, even those who went through the lockdown in Wuhan, that's gratitude. Kind of they feel thankful about yeah. the party, the party actually saved them. So that's something I fear. Right. If there's any uh, concession that, that this, this is people, just, oh, thank you for saving me. And they will just forget everything that people have been mm -hmm. fighting for. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also, I don't know, try to be hopeful as well. Uh, many people have been saying in protests, uh, in slogans, uh, online, online spaces, that we should not, we should never forget the Uyghurs. We should never forget those who have fought for our freedom. And so I hope this time people will not forget. Uh, but and also, I think the, this level of reckoning uh, in this current move, movement is also quite unprecedented. So uh, because mm -hmm. of that, I am hopeful that this is something that will stay with people, almost like a, a kind of a sparkle. But that sparkle can mm -hmm. bring a lot of things. It can bring yeah. light. It can bring hope. Yeah, I love that. Right. I mean, these things work that way, right? Like you said, it's... Uh... People are inspired by different movements, even if they flame out, you know, like yeah. we're going to have the yeah. most uh, defeatist attitude about what happened here around George Floyd and say nobody ever actually defunded their police departments. In fact, now we're having advertised like, I don't know, every time I turn on the television here in the Bay Area in Oakland, you know, there's ads for like, hey, come join the Oakland Police Department, please, you know. And that um, people are still being killed by the police at, at the same rate as always and that nothing happened, you know. But I think that there's this thing where these symbols that are, you know, travel around the world uh, do lose things. And then they things do happen in places that you don't expect that are much more consequential, like Iran, you know. And that, um, you know, if you keep a international frame to all of this, then, like, you can actually think that you're making progress somewhere, even if like your own situation might be somewhat ho hopeless, right? Like, so I don't know. I think that the, like the way that you put it is quite beautiful in that sort of way. I mean, at least reflects how I feel as well. Um, okay. Well, thank you for coming on. This is wonderful and yeah, educational. And I think, uh, yeah. I don't know. I appreciate you coming on. Can you just tell us one more time how people can find you and, you know, how they can listen to your podcast? Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> Um, I spend way too much time on social media, so I, um, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Tingua Writes, and uh, I'm on Instagram as well. I, I think Instagram, I think, is Ting Microwave, and uh, I'm on Facebook too. But I, I Ting don't Microwave, microwave, 
uh, uh, <laughs> W A Y rather than wave. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we also co-host this podcast. We will try to update at least once a year. <laughs> it's Shi Chat podcast, <laughs> and that's our uh, Twitter name, a Twitter handle as well. It's Shi Chat podcast. Yeah. Great. Thank you for coming on.、Um, and we'll talk、too. to you soon. It's great.、Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our show. As always, you can support us at goodbye.substack.com or on Patreon at patreon.com/ttsgpod. If you would like to do that and give us five dollars a month, you get access to our Discord server and bonus episodes. Our Discord server is wonderful. We met all the people there、yeah. again. I don't know. Some of them are like I've seen so many times now, and you know they're friends, and it's cool to have that type of community. Um, around like you know what is something that I always just think of me and Tammy talking into the ether, <laughs> but、uh, yeah, please join our community if you like the show. And、um, one special announcement is that there will be less episodes in the upcoming month because I'm not sure I've talked about it on the show before, but I am you know not I, but my wife and I are having a <laughs> child very soon, like imminently. Like it could probably happen in the next few weeks here. And after that, you know, it's going to be hard for me to always record. But we're going to keep you updated on Twitter and through our Substack email about it. But I don't know. I don't think it'll be too big of a disruption. But there might be a couple、okay. weeks here where there's no episode. And if that happens, <laughs> then we'll tell you about it. Yeah. But you know, luckily, it's around the same time as Christmas, everything like that, or you know, whatever.、Um, The holidays, and so like you know, I, in the new year. So I think it's going to be okay. You know,、um, we're all going to get it through it together. And if it goes too long, then we'll start refunding people's、uh, monthly payments and stuff like that. But I don't think it'll get to that point.、Um, but、mm-hmm. yes, thanks for listening to the show, and Tammy. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye, Jeff.